Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where our historians let loose their pious fury. The podcast where myth and misconception are stripped of all their assets and burnt at the stake. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my ever-loyal co-host and guardian of our sacred relics, Kyle Glover. Hello. And today, dear ragers, we are taking a route into bizarre historical conspiracy with a group that, despite presence in the history books for nearly 1,000 years, definitely have more myth than history. So to take us on this quest for the Holy Grail, we are joined today by historian, author, and researcher for the British Library, Rory McClellan. Rory, welcome to History Rage. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. So you've come to us courtesy of Series 5 Ranger, uh, Andrew Lowney. So thank you to Andrew. And if you do want to hear a good rant on Edward VIII, then Series 5, Episode 3. But getting back to tonight, Rory, can you give us a guide to you, your background, what particularly led you down this field and how you ended up where you are? Uh, So I've always been more interested in medieval history than in other periods. So when it came to university, I studied medieval history degree. And I'd known about the Templars and other military orders because you come across them in in films and video games and books and so on. And towards the end of the degree, uh, they ended up having a session where all of the potential supervisors had suggested topics that people could do for their dissertation. And one of them was the Knights Templar in England. And initially I thought, oh, that would be quite interesting, but I don't want to have to deal with all the conspiracy theory crap and have to wade Mm -hmm. through that. So actually I'll do the hospitalers in England instead. And so initially I tried to get away from this, but then went on to postgrad study and started to find some more of the Templar history a bit more interesting and Though I did end up still doing my PhD on the Hospitallers, I've been doing quite a bit of work on the Templars as well, because they are still very current now, not just in pop culture, like like I said, with all Mm. these books and films about them, but also in a much darker way. They're quite politically current. Uh, You have a lot of far-right groups that are very interested in imitating or or using the imagery of the Templars. So the fact that it's just so current and there's there's constantly new myths and new stories coming out about them, it's sort of never ending. And so it's sort of one of those rabbit holes that you go down, but there's not really a way out of it. Well, well, since, since we're diving straight down that rabbit hole, you know, uh, and it's, it's not like knights haven't gone up against fierce rabbits before, then let's kick this rage off, because I imagine this is going to be a long, detailed and quite angry one. So, Rory, would you please tell our mob of pious supplicants out there what you wish that people would just stop believing? That they would stop believing that the Templars secretly survived after they were suppressed, that they had the Holy Grail or the Turin Shroud or or some other magical relic, that they had uh, secret Jewish knowledge going back to the Temple of Solomon, that they were secret pagans or Muslims or devil worshippers, that they went and discovered America or that they hid out in Rosslyn Chapel. Just any of these things because they – they really obscure so much of this history that's more interesting than than any of these myths. And actually, 
when you compare them to the other military orders, the Templars weren't that important. They weren't the most important one. They lasted for not very long. They weren't that successful and they got wiped out. And this overshadows all of these other orders and their histories, which are so much more interesting or more significant than made up myths about going off to America and finding it before Columbus. So if I could, so, cause this sounds like I might be struggling to fit this in an hour. There's, there's a lot here. Um, um can, can I sum that up in, in the phrase, I wish nobody had read a Dan Brown novel. Yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty much. No Dan Brown and no, um, holy blood, holy grail. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. the, that's the key offender. That's the other one. Yes. If, oh yeah. Mm. That's the conspiracy Bible is that one, isn't it? Okay, so so given we're historians, let's start this from the point of view that the Templars are not this shadowy cabal running everything from the deep state to the local post office, occasionally stopping off to put LSD in chemtrails and so forth. Who and what actually were they? What was their purpose? So a really good description of this is by one of the one of the leading historians of the Templars in England, uh, Helen Nicholson. And she says that as far as the Templars went, the evidence we got shows them to be pretty boring Roman Catholics. They start off after the First Crusade. So you've had this mass campaign coming from mostly Western Europe. The Crusaders have conquered most of the coastline uh, from Antioch down to Jerusalem, a lot of what is now Lebanon, Israel, it's Syria. And they've travelled so far across Europe and the Near East to get there. They've gone through all these battles and sieges and ambushes and loads of them have died. And they finally got there and then most of them go home again. And a minority of them do stay and they become these new rulers and nobility and settlers of what historians call the Latin East. And they set up these uh, new crusader states. So you have the Kingdom of Jerusalem, Principality of Antioch. County of Edessa, County of Tripoli. But the problem is that they are now quite short of manpower. They're very outnumbered and they're surrounded by people that they've either attacked, threatened to attack or betrayed. So they obviously need some sort of help. And the main point for a lot of the crusaders of the first crusade was to secure all of the Christian holy sites in the Holy Land. So you have all of these different locations in Jerusalem, Nazareth, Bethlehem, and elsewhere that are linked to all of these New Testament and Old Testament stories. And yet, because there's so few of them, they can't actually defend all of the pilgrim routes to all of these sites. And if you read some of these pilgrim accounts from soon after the First Crusade, they're full of stories of how you have to be very careful going along this route because if you go anywhere near to this hill or to this valley, you will get ambushed and you will get yeah. killed by bandits. And so eventually this just gets worse and worse. You have later crusade expeditions like the Norwegians turning up. But again, they get there, they fight a few battles, they look at the holy sites, and then most of them go home. And then at Easter in 1119, there's a group of 700 pilgrims going from Jerusalem to River Jordan to the site where Jesus is supposed to have been yeah. baptized. And they get attacked and hundreds of them are killed. And the king of Jerusalem sends out a force to try and chase down the bandits. 
But by the time they get there, they've already escaped to nearby Muslim-held cities. So there's clearly a real need for some sort of new type of force to help defend the Crusader states, one that isn't just going to turn up, fight for a bit, and then go home again. And so out of this, this is where you get the idea of a military religious order. So there's two uh, northern French knights, Hugh de Payon and Godfrey de Saint-Omer, who band together with several other knights to help patrol the roads around Jerusalem. And when exactly this happened, we don't know for certain, because people at the time, they're not going to write about it until it's important. They don't realize how important Templars are until a few decades later. But it seems to have been around 1119 or 1120, uh, which is when they get official sort of recognition at at a council of the uh, Kingdom of Jerusalem, of all the leading nobles and churchmen. And the king of Jerusalem, Baldwin II, gives this group of knights a wing of the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount, which was then used as his royal palace. And the Crusaders believed that the mosque had been built on the site of the Temple of Solomon. And so these knights become the knights of the Temple of Solomon, and hence Knights Templar. And this is their headquarters until... Jerusalem is lost to Saladin in 1187. And from this point, they start to grow in number. They end up uh, going back to Europe. Eudipayon goes back to France and England and Scotland on a sort of recruitment campaign. And they end up receiving a lot of men, a lot of supports and lands. And they also get approval from Pope and they're given their first rule, which is basically the the set of regulations that govern everything about how you're going to live in a religious order. So, you know, your daily schedule, what rules you have to follow, how you join, what punishments there are if you break the rules. And Bernard of Clairvaux, who's one of the really leading churchmen at the time and is a major figure in launching the preaching for the Second Crusade, helps formulate this rule. So they're already getting friends in, in high places. And this rule includes all of everything about how to be a Templar and how to behave on campaign. And it sets out the initial requirements that make them into this military religious order, this combination of being a knight, but of also having a a monastic life. So they have to swear vows of poverty. They don't have any personal possessions of their own uh, obedience so that they will be loyal to the order. They'll follow the commands of their superiors and chastity. So they're avoiding any sort of sex, any sort of even potentially romantic activity. And then over the 1100s, the Templars keep growing in power. Later popes give them more and more privileges. They are given this really high status privilege in that they are exempt from the oversight of bishops. Now, if you're a Benedictine, Mm. then you'll have your local bishop turn up to your monastery every now and then to make sure you're following the rules. The Templars don't have that unless the Pope specifically asks for it. And they're allowed to avoid paying tithes to other churches and other monasteries. They're exempted from a lot of church taxes and secular taxes. They can build their own churches, their graveyards. And this really helps them amass a lot of wealth and power but it also means that they antagonize a lot of people who are jealous of this independence or of this wealth. 
So that's the Templar Order, but who are the Templars themselves? Um, what sort of person becomes a Templar? How do you? How do the Templars actually go about recruiting people? How do you, if you're a medieval person in the Middle Ages, how do you join the Templars? So, like I said, the rule sort of sets this all out. So we've got this great document that, that gives us a lot of evidence about how it actually works, including a proper guideline to the reception ceremony, what the person joining is supposed to say, what the other people are supposed to say in the ceremony. So to join the order, you have to be male. You have to be freely born. So you can't be a serf. You can't be in service to someone else. You have to be, have a healthy body because whilst for other religious orders, they would sometimes accept people who might have disabilities and so on. For military orders, they're not going to accept people who might not be able to fight. And you also have to not be suffering of any sort of severe illness at the time, uh, not bringing any debts with you, not promise to have joined any other order. Now, officially, women weren't allowed to join the Templars, but we do find some instances where women do try and join. So some of them just associate with the order. So they basically say to them, but I really like the Templars. I know I can't join. Can I have permission to basically live as if I was a Templar? Not living with you, but living somewhere else and following all your rules. And perhaps giving some sort of money to the order. So we find that um, sometimes people join their confraternity. Uh, and this is sort of like a, a, a monastic loyalty club. You can pay some money into the order and you get certain spiritual privileges. You can be buried in their churches. They'll pray for you after you die, that sort of thing. So women can also be associated there. And there is also this really unusual instance where there is one woman who seems to have joined as one of these sort of informal associates with her husband. Her husband becomes a full Templar. He eventually dies. And in 1198, she appears in this document and she's described as being the commander of their house uh, in northeastern Spain. So there's still some ways for, for women to get involved, but primarily we're talking about men who join the order. And when you join, there are three classes within the order that you can be part of. Mm -hmm. So you have the knights, and these are the ones who, who you have sort of, when you picture uh, an image of a Templar in sort of the white mantle, so these sort of half cloak, half robe, that can be sort of closed over your woman's cloak with the red cross. That is a Templar knight that you're probably imagining. And they made up most of the order's leadership, and they had to be of a knightly background by the uh, 1200s. So they already had to have reached that status outside of the order. So they're a bit different from, say, religious orders, uh, more monastic ones, where you sometimes have people joining as children. And that's really rare for things like military orders, because they want people who can fight. They don't want to have to look after you for 10 years until you're old enough. And then the second division are sergeants who normally wore a black or brown mantle. And these were a mixture of other military personnel mm -hmm. and administrative servants. So they might be there as a cook, but they might also be there as a man at arms. And they made up most of the Templar membership, and they're generally of a lower social background than the knights. So they might be 
you know, from a, a wealthy merchant family in a city or from sort of the lower gentry. You're still not talking like peasant and serf at the time. Still not serfs. I mean, there's some stories of people saying that they're freeborn and they turn out not to be. So in the Seventh Crusade, so when Louis IX is leading this crusade into Egypt, uh, there is a Templar sergeant who one of the lords on the crusade claims is actually his serf, and he, he sort of reclaims him uh, as his serf. But officially, you shouldn't be joining if, if you're in that case. And it's a bit risky because generally, if you say you join in northern France, Unless they send you to the Holy Land, you're probably going to be stationed in northern France. So you you know you might run into people who know who yeah. you really are. And then the third division are the chaplains, who are the priests in the service of the order, and they're the smallest of the three divisions. There really aren't very many of them. Now, in terms of how they recruit, we don't have loads of evidence about, say, going out and doing sort of preaching campaigns and saying, come and sign up. It seems that people generally would approach the order and ask to join. People are going to know about them. They are mentioned a lot. Uh, whenever there's, say, a papal letter going to a different bishop or a monk saying, oh, you, you need to go and have, uh, have sort of this tax raised, it always has a little exemption going, except for you know, the hospitalers, the templars, the Cistercians, and any other exempt orders. People who live near a hospitaler house will know about them because they'll be local landlords. They'll run some of the local farms. They'll have men coming down to the market to sell their goods and things. They'll be collecting taxes if you're their tenant. You'll see their signs on people's houses to mark out the, that they are held from the Templars. So they are really going to be something that if you live nearby, you're going to be aware of these people. And so it seems that people then approach them. And there does seem to be a strong link between living nearby a Templar house and mm. joining the order. When we have a Templar who has a place name as, as part of their name, that place that they seem to have come from is often near to a Templar house or even in the same village or town. And sometimes there's also uh, links where it's more sort of like a social network. So Hugh de Payon's uh, former lord, the uh, Count of Champagne, he joins the order. Uh, we find other families where they have repeated uh, generations where they have people in the order joining, the, uh, people joining the Templars each generation. So then there seems to be this sort of social and family and sort of local network that leads to people joining. And one of the big motivations behind it really seems to be religious yeah. belief is the main thing because you're you're signing up for what's actually quite a hard life you're foregoing any chance of a family any personal possessions any, anything that's really your own when you join in the reception ceremony they make a point of saying to you after you've confirmed that you're eligible they do say this is a really hard life. You're going to have to fight when you don't want to. You're going to have to sleep when you're not tired. You're going to have to stay awake when you're exhausted. You'll have to eat when you're not hungry, and you'll have to not eat when you're starving. You have to follow all of our rules, and the punishments can be quite strict if you don't. And unlike with other religious orders, where you could sometimes get out, 
that's not so much the case for the military orders. It's more difficult to get out. So for other monastic orders, you often have a novitiate. So you join for a year as like a probation period. And at the end, if you or they decide you're not suited for living as a monk, you can go. And in some orders, if you actually think that this order is a bit soft for you and you want something a bit more austere where you're really sort of struggling, then you can go and join a harsher order instead. The military orders, including the Templars, don't have a novitiate, so it is more difficult to get out. So it's much more of a commitment. And so if you're then traveling these thousands of miles out to the Holy Land, religious belief is probably a very big driver. And certainly when we look at why people go on crusade in general, most historians now do think that religious belief, not wealth or bloodthirstiness or or wanting to get land, it's it's religious further that is the biggest driver Mm -hmm. of that. But there are other aspects that do come into it. It's a good way to advance in society if you're from a sort of middling knightly background, because a lot of these uh, Templars, they end up having uh, quite important roles back in Europe, because they're, they're funding all of their campaigns by all of these lands that they're given back in Europe, where they farm, they raise taxes and so on, they send all this money to the East. So they they become really important landowners back in the West, which brings with it political power and political responsibilities. So we end up finding kings using them because these are people who generally have like an international standing. So they're quite useful as diplomats. You can send them to another king and the other king will recognize who they're from and who they're representing. They are also quite good at money. So both the kings of England and of France give them a lot of financial Uh, duties, like looking after their treasury or auditing accounts. And so it's a really good way to get ahead in an organization if you don't necessarily have a really prestigious background, if you're not part of the nobility. And you do find people who are from sort of lower knightly backgrounds getting really quite senior roles in the Templar Order, because it doesn't matter as much once you're in. Would it be fair to say that if you're, let's say you're a third or fourth son or something like that, you're going to inherit the square root of bollock all uh, and so forth, but you're of that lower and middling area of the gentry, would having a Templar in the family lift up the rest of the family in terms of reputation? Until... Until the Templar trial, until you have all of these rumours about heresy and so on, yeah, it would be quite a good thing to be associated with them and to say, this is how dedicated our family are to the Holy Land. You you just ended up giving some money to them. I actually sent off a son. So it does help improve their, their prestige. And also one thing that we see more so in the other military orders, because the Templars don't quite last quite mm. long enough to do so, but... If you're in charge of a house in the West, it is often easier for the Templars because there aren't very many of them. We're talking about an order that across the whole of Europe and the Holy Land, maybe they have a thousand people who are actually full members of the order. There's not loads of them. You have this image of whole armies, but in terms of actual sworn members, there's not loads. And so most of these houses have between one and three Templars in each of them. And so they often find that it is easier for them to not administer all of the lands they have themselves and to rent them out to locals 
And so I'll, I'll rent it out to you for this amount and you'll be able to make a profit off it. And so I get a bit less money, but it saves me the effort yeah. and the work and I still get enough money. And we find people doing that to their relatives. Well, who doesn't like a passive income? Yeah, they just rent it out to their, uh, to their local, uh, uh, to their relatives living nearby to the house that they're in. It's, it's more common in the late medieval period uh, than in the period that the Templars are in. But there is some instances of the Templars doing that as well. So they, they still have those, those family links and hmm. they, they can still use it to benefit their families. So what are, you say that they've got relatively short period of time, I think, isn't it something like about 1119 till about 1309 in total or something like that? And so what are the events in history where Templars have really left their mark? See, that's one of the one of the perhaps more controversial points, but maybe not everyone else working on military orders agrees with me, is that I do think that the Templars aren't the most important military order. And yes, they're only around officially from eleven twenty to thirteen oh seven is when the arrests start, and there's still a couple of them that are still around so the arrests take a bit longer in some countries than in others but then by 1312 the order is suppressed hmm. so it's not even a full 200 years but you've got you've got what 180 years there they've, they've got to have made some achievements they they do the bulk of it is in the crusader states so one of the most <laughs> One of the most significant achievements, unfortunately, is is actually um, it's it's a uh, an achievement in failure. Um, <laughs> they're responsible. They're responsible for one of the worst defeats that the Kingdom of Jerusalem suffers. Do tell. So, <laughs> so initially, the the Templars are a growing force throughout the 1100s. The Crusader states slowly grows. And then when it gets to the 1140s, they get their first big defeat. The county of Edessa, which is quite far inland, is conquered and falls quite quickly. And that triggers the Second Crusade. And the Templars are a part of each of these major crusade expeditions. They're generally seen as the experts. So when you have visiting crusaders, they do go to the Templars for advice uh, generally, when there is a crusader army on the march, the Templars or the Hospitallers are either at the vanguard or at the rearguard of the column because they're seen as the most steady, the most experienced, the least likely to turn and run if they're attacked. So that's why you put them in more dangerous positions. Unfortunately, their leadership wasn't always great. And perhaps this is something to do with being part of a military order that they're also perhaps a little bit too uh, zealous. So one of the other orders, the um, Order of St. Lazarus, uh, their grandmasters like to just go off on, on charges and, and they all get killed, or they go on uh, a foraging uh, raid and they all get killed. For the Templars, they have in the 1180s a grandmaster called uh, uh, Gerard de Ridfort, and he ends up persuading the King of Jerusalem into this catastrophic mistake. So at this point, they've had peace with Saladin for quite a while. 
but it is broken down because of a rogue crusader lord called Reynard de Chatillon. And so now they're actually facing Saladin. And this is really, really bad because in the past, when the crusaders have been at war with the Muslims, generally it's been they've been at war with Egypt or with Syria. Saladin has both. And so they are in quite a lot of trouble. And they take, uh, Saladin manages to take the city of Tiberias. And so the army of Jerusalem decides to march out of the city. And one of the other lords says, this is a terrible idea. You shouldn't go. You've got a good fortified, well-defended position here with water. And Guy refuses to stop the march, and he is persuaded by the Templar master to cross this really dry plain to try and get to the city to retake it. And so Guy listens to the Templar Grand Master, he crosses over the plain, and they're encircled by Saladin, who does have water supplies. And there's these stories about the, the Muslims sort of encircling them with horses and pouring out water in front of these very thirsty crusaders in, in the heat. And so the entire army is surrounded and the vast majority of them are killed. Almost all the Templars in the East are killed. We actually have letters from them going back saying, we have lost several hundred people. This has decimated our, mm -hmm. our convent in the East. We need lots of reinforcements. And many of the nobles in the Crusader army are captured, including Guy, the King of Jerusalem, and Gerard. And Gerard is later released in exchange for giving up the Templar fortress of Tortosa to Saladin. But he then gets captured again two years later, uh, whilst besieging the city of Acre, and he gets executed. So this defeat at, uh, at Hattin wipes out so much of a crusader army that it means that Saladin is then able to march upon Jerusalem. It's not nearly as well defended as it could have been otherwise. And there's a siege and he then takes the city. It is surrendered to him. And from that point on, the crusader states never really recover. Mm. They briefly get back Jerusalem as part of a peace treaty. They don't take it by force. Again, it is a peace treaty. Uh, when Frederick II comes over in the early 1200s. But again, they only held that for a bit, and then the Mongols turn up. It all gets very complicated, and they lose Jerusalem again. They never get it back. And at that point, the Crusader states just keep getting smaller and smaller until they're really pushed to hugging the coast. And for the following 100 years, there's occasional recoveries. They retake Acre. They retake a couple more cities. Maybe Acre is threatened, so a, Euro a European king comes over, leads a big crusade, secures Acre again, and then goes home. But he doesn't really recover, and and that's you know it, it's not entirely Gerard's fault, but he does help convince Guy de Luzion to make that really catastrophic yeah. decision. Yeah, I suppose when your when your chief thing for being in charge is you are the most religious rather than you are the most tactically sound, then uh, shit like that's going to happen. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, they they do have that benefit in that they are very experienced. They do know what they're doing, 
but they are very impetuous as well. And there are stories of Templars and other military orders. They do sometimes like to charge into battle when perhaps they shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> That's the end of the Templars in the East. Um, how does the order as a whole uh, meet their end? I understand it's quite a brutal ending for the Templars. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to them and why? So by the time that they come to by the time it comes to the Templar trials and so on, they're they're quite in decline. So the Holy Land is is gone by this point. Uh, the last um, mainland stronghold is Acre, and that is conquered in 1291. Uh, the Templars uh, end up fighting very valiantly in the siege, uh, but the Templar Grand Master is killed. Loads of his knights are killed. The remnants of the Crusaders flee to the Kingdom of Cyprus. And there's a few Armenians in, in what's now sort of southeastern Turkey, northwestern Syria, but basically that's, that's the end of Crusaders on the mainland. And the Templars are sort of then at a bit of a loose end. They don't seem to have quite known what to do with themselves. The other big military orders end up finding new purposes for themselves. So the ones in Spain, they still have the Muslims in Spain to fight against. The Teutonic Knights, this German military order, they go up to the Baltic into what's now Latvia and Lithuania, and they fight against the pagans there. The Hospitallers turn into a naval power, and they eventually uh, conquer Rhodes from the Greeks, and they make it their own independent state and use that as a base to fight against the Turks for 200 years. The Templars don't really manage to do this. And so it's easier for them to be criticised. They make one little attempt to take this island called Ruad, which is this really small island off the coast of Syria. And they do capture it and they hold it for two years. But the big problem is that it doesn't have a water supply. So it's not a very good place to stay for two years. And they lose it after a while and they then basically never try to get it back. And so. Criticism against them builds, and people see that the Templars have all of this land in the West. And they think this about the other military orders as well, and they think that you've got all of these properties. People donate all this money to you. How could you have lost the East? Clearly, you weren't fighting hard enough. And it just builds more and more against them. And because they don't have this independent base that is just their own, because the Templars are now basically split up amongst all of, uh, they're all spread out across their holdings in Europe and in Cyprus. Whilst the Hospitallers, they have their own little independent island. They're a bit difficult to target. The Teutonic Knights have their own state in Northern Europe. The Templars don't have that. So they're a lot more vulnerable to a king that doesn't like them. Because even though they are supposed to be independent and the pope has said you know they don't have to listen to bishops they don't have to listen to kings they only have to listen to the pope in reality if you hold lands in someone's kingdom you do have to listen to them because otherwise they'll come and take mm. their lands away from you and you do owe all of this sort of secular service to them and for the last 200 years they have been fighting in royal armies and they have been acting as royal servants and diplomats and administrators and unfortunately for them the King of France, Philip IV, is really quite short of money. Hell hath no fury like a skint Frenchman. <laughs> Louis IX ends up 
going on crusade twice. He's a terrible crusader. He gets captured once. He dies of dysentery the second time. He ends up spending a lot of money on his crusades that 50 years later, well, 30 to 50 years later, depending on which crusade you're thinking of, his descendants are still having to pay off and they're still struggling from this. And Philip IV can see that the Templars have a lot of money, particularly because they often have his treasury. And so he ends up arresting the Templars. It's a sudden dawn raid. You initially have the head of the order, Jacques de Molay. He's in Europe, called there by the Pope to talk about plans for a new crusade. And on the 12th of October, he's attending the funeral of the sister-in-law of Philip. And he's even a pallbearer. And then at dawn the next day, his order is arrested. Wow. There's dawn raids across France, and all the Templars are arrested. There's, there's no warning that this is coming for the ones in France. There's no chance to hide their possessions to get away to escape. They're all accused of heresy and arrested. And this is something that Philip likes doing. He's already had fights with one of the popes. He actually imprisoned one of the popes. One of his agents slapped the pope. And the Pope later died because of how ill-treated he was. So <laughs> he and he accused the Pope of heresy. He accuses other people of heresy. It's something he really goes to as his as his go-to accusation. Mm -hmm. And the Order is accused of things like denying Christ, uh, worshiping idols, uh, defacing the cross, so spitting on it, urinating on it, uh, committing sodomy, which in the medieval period. People say it now, it's a very derogatory term towards homosexuality. In medieval periods, it could mean that, but really it could just mean any sort of sex that was seen as deviant. So, you know, anything that wasn't procreation, basically. And the brethren are tortured. And the Pope is really shocked by this. Because of the torture, a lot of them end up confessing, because probably wouldn't get tortured. Yeah. And the Pope then has to re uh, realizes that this has gone massively out of control. Philip is demanding that every other king arrest the Templars as well. And so the Pope tries to take over the process because he's quite angry that the king has done this. He's not supposed to do this. This is supposed to be something that only the Pope could do. So he can't ignore this. It's such a big scandal. You can't just brush it away and go, no, there's nothing to see here. It's all fine. So the papacy takes over the process. And the Templars quickly go, oh, no, we're, we only said it because we were tortured. And they retract their confessions. But Philip pressures the Pope, who, lucky for him, is based in Avignon in France. So he knows that the French king can very easily come down with an army and sit it outside his castle and force the Pope to go along with it. I mean, he already managed it when the Pope was, uh, was off in Italy. But it's even easier now that he's in the same kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so the process goes on. The Templars are steadily arrested in other countries, and they are put on trial. In some of them, they're tortured. There's lots of confessions. And eventually, the Pope just says, this is so bad for the Order's reputation. We can't bring them back as a group. 
it's just the whole idea is so tainted. He doesn't find them all guilty of heresy. So there are some Templars who've been found innocent, or there are some who've confessed and they've done some penance, and they're going to receive pensions for life, and they can, they're going to be sent off to another monastery where they can live a religious life, and they can be watched over just in case there's any problems. The ones who've been found guilty, or who've gone back on their confession, get tried again. So with heresy generally, if you are found guilty of heresy, as long as you say, you know, I'm really sorry, I'm never going to do it again, then you should be okay. You might end up being sent to live a very penitential life, a quite a hard life in a monastery, but you should be all right. If you're found then to have committed heresy again, that's when you get executed. And so most of the Templars aren't actually executed. Philip burns quite a few of them to intimidate them, but most of them just end up being sent off to monasteries around the place. And they probably live out fairly dull lives for the next few decades. The more famous ones are like Jacques de Molay, who had been found guilty, well, who had confessed and then recanted his confession. Therefore, he becomes a relapsed heretic, so he gets tried again. And with this suppression of the order in 1312, the order is basically over. Two years later, Jacques de Molay and a couple of other leading Templars are then executed, mm. uh, burnt at the stake in Paris. And that, that really is the, the end of the Templars as an organization. There might be some individual Templars left, but there is no longer a group. They, they are just individual people who are now ex-Templars. So, right, we get, you know, we get all of this stuff coming out of, like, Assassin's Creed, the Da Vinci Code, all of that. I, I mean, I've read some truly awful things um, in fiction. What, what, in your opinion, are the most laughable and and controversial Templar myths that that we come across, and how do they still impact us now? I think the the most laughable ones. The problem is that there's just so many of them. It it really seems to be unlike any other uh, area of pseudo history that I've come across. There's there's just so much, and there's so much new stuff that's coming out about this, much more than, than other areas like you know, moon landings or Hitler survival myths or something. I think the strangest one that I came across was that there's this very weird book that has this theory that Robin Hood is, is a real individual, which uh, maybe you know some historians might sort of debate it maybe a little bit probably not a real person. So, he, But all of those stories, according to this guy, are true. But it's taking place in the reign of Edward I, so in the late uh, 1200s mm. into the early 1300s. Robin Hood then isn't actually in Nottinghamshire. Instead, he's in Scotland fighting against Edward I. And Robin Hood is actually William Wallace. And he's not just fighting against Edward I, Edward I is in a conspiracy with a group of Kabbalite Jewish Templars. And it, it's just 
completely mad. I've, and, and my brain is melting. Uh, and, I, you know, I, 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 I hate to point out this, but part of it is going to be a Christian, Christian order. I mean, you can't have a conspiracy without somebody hating Jews. I mean, it seems to be a golden rule, can't you? And, and that's one of, one of the ways that they still you know, have this really dark impact today is that quite a lot of these um, conspiracy theories, they really like this idea that, oh, the Templars have a base on the Temple Mount. They must have excavated it. They must have found some mysterious ancient Jewish treasure, or or they must have learned some magical Kabbalah-like geometries from the building of the Temple. And there's even one that supposedly they're descended from the Jews who fled Jerusalem in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed by the Romans and they go to Europe and somehow they continue to keep this knowledge secret through over a thousand years to then come back with the first crusade to then find all of these old treasures. And I've seen people promote these ideas who, whilst they're quite misguided, they don't seem malicious in it, but they don't seem to realize that if you spread this idea that they're secretly Jewish, and they're still around today, and they have a lot of financial and political power. It just plays into every anti-Semitic trope that there is, mm. and it yeah. just feeds into everything that you can already find people on the far right spreading. Yeah, you don't need to add to that. Yeah. I would say as well, if you're going to have like thousand years of all this secret power and everything like that, if you look, you know, if you look along two thousand years of history. If there's a demographic that keeps getting systematically shat on by everybody in the world, it is the Jews, you know, from from, from being, you know, expelled from the UK, or sorry, UK, expelled from England by Edward I, burnt to death in Clifford's Tower, all the way up to the Holocaust. You, you would think that if any of that was had a remote amount that, that they could just unleash. It's just... I don't know why people can see that. That's one of the one of the odd things is that you do have these accusations in the trial records of um, worshiping Baphomet, which is this weird becomes this weird idea that it's supposedly a goat headed demon uh, with wings, and that actually just seems to be a medieval French spelling of Muhammad. So they're basically accusing them of being Muslims, but. What I don't think I've come across in the trial records, I don't think there's any point where they say, oh, they're secretly Jewish. Even though that's the sort of thing which you could have people at the time in quite anti Semitic mm -hmm. medieval mm -hmm. Christian Europe, that is something that they could accuse people of, but they don't. Mm -hmm. And yet you have these people going, oh, yes, they are secretly Jewish. If even the people at the time who were going through all of their possessions, all their houses, all their writings, and they didn't come up with this mad idea. And they've got a vested interest in seeing the end of these people. Mm. And you don't use that nice, convenient scapegoat there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the last question. Um, why the Templars? Um, we don't see these conspiracy theories or this as much conspiracy theory or as much pop culture around, say, Hospitallers or the or the Teutonic Knights, or any of the other knightly orders, what is it about the Templars that singles them out for this treatment? The two main things are their dramatic end, and be and the second is because they can't sue. Hmm. Very good point, now that you mention it. <laughs> yeah, when you look at it like that. 
Yeah, because you, you have this story that has a definite end point. Like the other orders, you know, the, the Hospitallers and Teutonic Order, they eventually fade into demilitarizing. And that's boring for some people because you, you, they don't go out in a blaze of glory. Instead, it's sort of, oh, you still have the Hospitallers around today, mm. but they just do charity work. They still call themselves knights, but they don't have a military role. And the Teutonic Order, they don't actually have a knightly element so much anymore. Even though there are these sort of fascinating stories of like the Teutonic Order, they had a regiment in the Austro-Hungarian army in the First World War that still had all its officers were members of the order. They were knights. But that's sort of at the point where they're becoming secularized. So instead you can go, you know, the Templars, no, they're quite cool because they don't, they don't decay. They don't decline. Mm. You can say that all of the accusations against them of heresy and so on are all made up, which most historians think, yeah, they probably were. They, they probably, they, there's no real evidence that they were sort of a mass of devil worshippers or that they were secretly Muslim or anything. And so you can say that those stories about any sort of corruption and decay amongst them probably aren't true. Instead, they're still these noble knights. They don't end up getting complicated by you know, the Reformation, which breaks up a lot of military orders into different groups. They don't become secularized and just given out to one of the younger sons of the kings like they do in Spain. Instead, they have a very definite start date and an end date, which has burnings and torture. And you can come up with some ideas, maybe some of them escapes. And that's a so much much easier story to tell and to sell. And because it gives you that finite end, you can add whatever you want after. And then because they have this end, as I said, they aren't around to sue. The Hospitallers have broken up into multiple different orders. They have a joint committee where they will send cease and desist letters to people that use the Hospitaller Cross and call themselves an Order of St. John. Uh, the Teutonic Order probably wouldn't be too happy if you went around calling yourself the Teutonic Order as well. The Templars, though, I, no one seems to care. I imagine that you know, the Catholic Church probably is the closest one to hold any sort of right to, yeah. to whatever iconography you could associate with the Templars, mm. but I don't think they're interested in doing so. And so you just have anyone going around calling themselves a Templar. There's so many of these very small groups that you can find online. And often they do exist primarily online rather than in the real world. And they're all over the place and there's no real regulation for it. And some of them do do charity work and some of them do get quite an unusual level of recognition. One of the bigger ones has observer status at the UN because of its charitable work. Wow. That just comes as a surprise. Mm. Yeah. wouldn't Well, so does the Catholic descendants of the Hospitallers, the uh, Sovereign Military Order of Malta. They, they also issue their own passports and stamps, and they have a single room in a fort on Malta and a plaza in Rome, which is actual sovereign territory of the order. Uh, so these things are still really attractive to people. People still really like the idea of joining an order and calling yourself a knight and being in a, a mantle with a, a red cross on it. Um, and I've been to some of these ceremonies and they're fascinating to, to see. And people are still so enthused by the idea. And thankfully, 
for most of these groups, this sort of further is just used to raise money for charity, uh, sometimes provide some medical mm-hmm. care. But then also there's a lot of far-right groups that like to go around and dress up as Templars. And that's one of the other reasons why they're quite appealing to people today is because of having in if the if the sort of the focus for the far right in the 1900s is being anti-semitic whilst that's still a big theme now ever since 9-11 war on terror and so on so now you know far right is very focused on being anti-islamic and if you're going to look for a historical precedent for that you're going to go back to looking at the crusades and in pop culture and popular imagination of crusaders, the best crusaders are the Templars. And so they're the ones you're going to imitate. And so you don't want to just be like you're some thug at a protest against some immigrants in a hotel. Instead, you're a chivalrous knight who's part of a thousand year tradition that is defending your people and your continent against these people from outside who we don't like. And so Mm. it's it's something that they can latch on to a lot more because so much of pop culture is still this idea of knights and chivalry. It's still in stories that people read to kids. It's still in video games. It's still in books and films. So the Templars are also appealing because this whole idea of knighthood is still something that is still used as an honorific and is still deeply appealing to people today. And that can be used for good purposes, like dressing up as a knight and using that to help raise money for charity, like the Order of Malta does. And it can be used for much darker purposes, like a lot of far-right groups do. Well, thank you very much, Rory. That was was legendary, to be (laughs) perfectly honest. Yeah. That was that. That has opened my eyes to an awful lot of things, uh, and I'm I'm really glad that we got you on. So so thank you very much for coming on and getting a thousand years of rage out in the open. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. If you'd like to know more, then you can start by following Rory on Twitter at RF McClellan, uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. You can see him giving talks in a variety of places, and keep your eyes out for Rory's uh, upcoming book on the Templars and the other military orders. And when that is released, we will be promoting it. But once again, Rory, thank you very much for coming on to History Rage. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffle. And I am at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this, then why not join our own Furious Angry Mob on Patreon? Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug, the Holy Grail itself. You can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, from everybody here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.